Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Women Belong in the House, a brand new podcast from a brand new media company. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. In case you missed the trailer earlier this week, let me fill you in. I recently left my job as a reporter for Bloomberg News to start something new. And that's because it's been a really dark few years, for people generally and for women in particular. Just as the school day was ending, the shooting started. You're waking up to a government that is shut down. Game on here. A trade war between the United States and China is here. The government has separated 2,000 kids from their parents. Russia did meddle with our election. Grabbed by the pussy. Now to the latest on Harvey Weinstein. It happened to me, too. It happened to me, too. But out of that darkness, there have come glimmers of a different kind of future. I'm determined to bring empathy and optimism to a bleak political news landscape. So I'm digging into stories of hope. The new day is on the horizon! Specifically, I'm looking at the record number of women who are running for the House of Representatives this November. This week, we're going to start with the candidate I feel confident in calling my favorite of all. Hello? Jenny Kaplan? Kachi Mignango, how's it going? You're very late, Mom. Okay, so first, can you just tell me your name, your title, you know, where you're running? My name is Kathy Manning. I'm running for Congress in North Carolina District 13. My mom and I have always had a lot in common. We often buy twinning outfits. We share a love of music and theater. And we both have a penchant for telling stories that last almost as long as the real event. It was her decision to run for office, her decision to step up and take action, that inspired me to shake up my life in order to share the stories of people trying to make the world better. There are a lot of people, and particularly women, who've made the decision that because our country is so off track and because we're in danger of losing our democracy, that we're willing to make that sacrifice. We're willing to take these slings and arrows that will be coming at us because the end hasn't yet been written. And we have to stand up and be part of that. Okay, we'll get back to that. But before we do, I think we need to look at the bigger picture. This year, a record number of women are running for office. It's incredibly exciting. Still, we're building from a pretty depressing place. It has been a story of very slow progress, right? That's Debbie Walsh. I went to visit Debbie at the Eagleton Center for Politics at Rutgers University. There, she's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics. Well, when we hit 100 women in Congress overall, House and Senate, 
It had been almost 100 years since the first woman was elected. The Center for American Women in Politics has been around since 1971. What we saw sort of from the 70s through the 80s was this kind of slow, steady progress. We're really looking at state legislatures as an important place to watch. It was the highest level of office with anything resembling a substantial concentration of women in it. Congress was much more of an up and down, pick up one, lose two. 1992 comes along, and we did see a jump. We saw a jump both at the congressional level and at the state legislative level. 1992, which is actually the year I was born, was the last time a year was called the Year of the Woman. A record number of women ran for office and won. Many of them were inspired by Anita Hill's testimony to an all-white, all-male group of senators during Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court confirmation hearings. NBC's Odetta Rogers is at the Capitol tonight. Odetta, how different is the place likely to look next year? Bob, it's expected to look very different. In fact, there could be 140 new members coming up here in January. It looks as though there will be a 50% increase in the number of minorities and women coming up for the 103rd Congress. Since probably the mid-90s, we've seen um, a kind of a stagnation we started to see a flatlining in the candidates. Women make up no more than 25% of office holders at any level of office, mayors of big cities, mayor of smaller cities, members of Congress, governors certainly not. Globally, the U.S. ranks about 90th in the world for the percentage of women serving in our national legislature. In 2016, when we had a woman at the top of the ticket for the first time in history, in the U.S. House, there was a zero net gain for women. In these first few episodes, we're going to ask the question, why? Why are there so few women in office? It's important to say up front that each woman faces different challenges and advantages because, well, Every woman is different. Still, there are reasons why there are fewer women in office generally, and there are unique challenges that women face. Debbie focused on a few key reasons. Women run less. They have a harder time raising money than their male counterparts do. Women don't look in the mirror and see what a stereotypical political leader looks like. And women tend to run when they're older meaning their political career arc is shorter. We know that young girls are less likely to be encouraged than young boys to participate in politics. So a lot of the early messages are, you know, that's not a place for you. And then the parties and party leaders aren't necessarily grooming women, making recruiting women a priority. Some of it, it's not even uh, outward hostility to women, right? It's that the people who are in power are largely white men. They hang out with white men. And who are they grooming? People that look like them, that they know, that they trust. And so th those are their candidates. So you've got this issue of recruitment. You also have the motivation to run. Why run? So men are more likely to tell us, the men who are in office, that when they first ran for office, what motivated them to do it was an interest in politics, an interest in a career in politics. They want to be in it. Women tell us that it's because of a public policy issue. So there's some problem they want to solve. We talk about that often as women run to do something and men run to be somebody. And that trying to do something, sometimes politics might not look like the place to, in fact, get something done, right? Therefore, I'm not going to do politics. I'm not going to do government. I'll work in a nonprofit. I'll, I'll be entrepreneurial. I'll start something on my own. 
and try to fix the problem that way. And then there's sort of a moment that comes when get that systemic change is a place, is a role that government can play. You also have at play the issue of money in politics. And then you also have this issue, age. Women tend to wait and run for office or have tended to wait and run for office until they're a bit older because they still tend to be the primary caretakers at home. When you look at the men and women in Congress and the men and women in state legislatures, the women are less likely to have children under the age of 18 still living at home. If you don't start running for the state legislature until you're in your late 40s, you're just not going to go as far as the young man who starts when he's, you know, 28 or 29. This week, we're going to look at the motivation to run. In subsequent episodes, we're going to dig into the other reasons Debbie mentioned. I think a lot of these women, they woke up after the November 2016 election and said, if that guy can be president of the United States, I can run for office. And they felt a real need to run. They felt like a kind of collective, I have to get off the sidelines. I can't let somebody else do politics for me. If I want people in office who look like me and sound like me, then I may need to be the candidate myself. That drive has pushed forward a huge movement of women. My mom decided it was time to stand up. Like many of the women I've spoken with for the show, she found herself asking, if not me, then who? So, here's her story. My mom was born on December 3rd, 1956, 40 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress and 36 years after women won the right to vote. Three years after Congress first had been presented with the proposed amendment and had tabled it over severe protest from feminine leaders, women all over the nation took their place at the polls. She grew up in Detroit, Michigan, where my grandfather worked at Ford Motor Company and my grandmother was a teacher. I grew up surrounded by a great close-knit family. My great-grandparents had been immigrants who came to this country with nothing and worked really hard, got great public school education for their kids, and they really were able to build a stronger future for their family. And I think looking back on their kids being successful and then my parents being very successful, it was the American dream. When she graduated from high school, she went east. Once when I was young, my grandmother gave me a little vinyl suitcase of some sort to use for something that had flags of all these different universities on it. And one of the flags was Harvard. And she said to me, it's such a shame that you're not a boy, so you can't go to Harvard like your father, because grandpa went to Harvard Business School. And I think that just stuck with me. And when it came time to apply to colleges, I applied to Harvard. And got in, much to my surprise, and frankly was incredibly intimidated when I arrived. So, you know, you had to find your place. I ended up falling back on my music and the voice and drama that I'd studied at Interlochen all those summers. Interlochen is an arts camp in northern Michigan that my mom went to for seven summers growing up. I actually followed in her footsteps and went for seven summers, too. And really found my place by starting the first female acapella singing group at Harvard that still exists today, as you well know. But I think what I loved about it was it was a place where we weren't competing with each other. Everywhere else was so cutthroat that to have a place where you had to work together 
And also because I was, I started the group and was leading it, I had to figure out how to work with those 14 strong personalities. They were not uh, wallflowers. So I learned a lot of leadership skills there and a lot of team building skills there. Although I, I learned a lot at Harvard academically, that those leadership skills actually proved to be really useful. She majored in history and then decided to pursue a career in law. At the University of Michigan Law School, my mom was, once again, one of very few women in her class. It's interesting. At Harvard, because there were so few women, you just felt like you were always on display. I guess that's one reason that gravitating toward a female singing group was kind of a nice thing to do. It was a great way to make friends and build some camaraderie. But, it, you know, it's in, it was intimidating, I have to say. That's all I remember about it. In, in law school, what I remember was that I felt like if, if every time I, if, if I would raise my hand and volunteer, which I never, ever did, that I can remember. But, you know, we, they use the Socratic method, so you'd get called on. And I always felt like when they called on the women, there was just more, you wanted to make sure you gave a really great answer because everybody was watching you. I think you just felt more vulnerable and more on display. And that's why when the first person you worked for said to me, one of the qualities your daughter has, she's totally fearless. She'll call anybody, whatever needs to be done, she'll do it. And I thought, that's my daughter? <laughs> she didn't get that from me. Well, that, that's where I think you're wrong. Because when you say that in law school, you wouldn't raise your hand, that is the most shocking information I've ever heard from you. Because you tend to have a bit of a blurting problem. And I've never seen you not oh. raise your hand. <laughs> so what happened? Kathy Manning went from unwilling to answer a question in class to a candidate for Congress. She felt a real call to activism after a happy ending to a traumatic situation. My parents first met in law school. There, they were best friends until they both moved to D.C. after graduation, fell in love, got married, and had my older sister, Liz. They were nice and situated in D.C. when my grandfather asked my dad to come back to Greensboro, North Carolina, to take over the family cleaning chemicals company. Just before we moved here, we had this pretty terrifying experience with Liz. When she was about seven or eight months old, we came here to decide whether we wanted to move here. So we came down here for me to interview at a law firm and to look at houses. And when we got home, it became apparent that there was something wrong with Liz. She was sick. And we, we took her to the doctor and he, he was a pretty young pediatrician, and he came in the office after reading the tests that, she, that they'd done on her, and he was just devastated. He said, she is extremely ill. You need to rush her to Children's Hospital immediately. They're waiting for you. I drove to Children's Hospital. There was no GPS. How we found it, I will never know. We had a couple nights in the ICU, and we just got really lucky because it turned out that what she had was the only option that was not fatal. I just felt like we had escaped, you know, the worst thing that can happen to a parent. And so, and literally, she recovered. We moved down to Greensboro. We'd had to delay. And I think I was so grateful. There was really sort of this direct relationship between we had escaped what other parents in that ward were going through. I needed to figure out how to give back. And so when we got opportunities to get involved, we did. In Greensboro. 
my mom found herself in a community where she could really make a difference. She started getting involved in politics, the Jewish community, and organizations that impacted Greater Greensboro. I learned that in a community of this size, if you're willing to volunteer, <laughs> you raise your hand and next thing you know, you're in charge. When you learn that you can have a real impact and you can make a difference in your community, it, it's a pretty great feeling. Early on, we started getting invited to political fundraisers. And the first fundraiser I was invited to where I paid, my own, paid for my own ticket, it was for professional women. And there were some other women in my other lawyers in my office that said, are you thinking about going to this? And, it, and I, I thought, well, it's a beautiful home I'd love to see. It's, in the, it's at noon, so I can leave work and get back, you know, just take off lunch hour. And, but it was $50, which was a lot of money. But we decided to go. And the speaker was this woman that none of us had ever heard of, but her husband was running for president, and he was the governor of Arkansas. And I remember walking in the front hall of this house, and there's this big staircase. She had that velvet, black velvet headband that she used to wear and a black plaid skirt. And first she spoke to the whole group. But then what she did that really impressed me, she met every single person and found a way to connect with everybody. Like you were having, like she really wanted to get to know you. It was an extraordinary experience. And it was sort of made me realize that, yeah, I should be going to these things. And I think the next event we went to, Al Gore showed up as a surprise guest speaker. Now, this was long before he was vice president. But, you know, when you live in a community of this size, you can meet important people who can change policy and affect the way the country is. The more she raised her hand, the more she ended up in the room where decisions were being made. She led countless community organizations in Greensboro. She built a law practice, and she became the first woman to chair the Jewish Federations of North America, an umbrella organization for Jewish communities across the country. After that, she raised about $40 million to create a new performing arts center to help stimulate growth of Greensboro's downtown. Like many of the women I've spoken to, my mom's life experiences have made her uniquely and supremely qualified to run. But it wasn't those qualifications that made her step up. It wasn't that she thought she'd make a good-looking congresswoman. It was the issues. She saw problems that needed to be solved, and she knew she could do it. Women really seem to be feeling a sense of urgency to serve their communities. That's Amanda Hunter. She's the communications director for the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. The foundation produces research-backed guides for women on both sides of the aisle to maximize advantages and clear hurdles when running for office. We see a lot of women challenging incumbents. And most women, if you look at almost any female candidate's website, are running because they see the impact of an issue. So for many of these women, something has directly impacted their family or their community, and that's how they were drawn into political activity. There are women that are passionate about health care, the opioid epidemic, gun violence, education, and that's why we see doctors, military veterans, teachers, and of course, mothers putting their lives on hold to run for office. After the election, which was shocking, I was hopeful that things would be better than we were perhaps expecting. But as I watched what went on in Washington, I became really worried about the future of the country. I remember reading something about history, that we, we're always reading 
about what happened, but we know what the end result is. But it's never been a given that the end was going to happen the way it did. So, for example, when you study the American Revolution, well, they didn't know that they were going to win. And in fact, the odds were were severely against the colonists that they were actually going to beat the most powerful empire in the world. Today, we look at it and say, well, of course they won. But the end was not a given. And so when I looked at what was going on in Washington and the policies that were, the the comments that were being made, as well as the reaction of Congress to what was going on, I started to worry about, well, what what is the end going to be? There's no assurance that our democracy is going to continue the way it always has. There's no assurance that women's rights are going to be protected. There's no assurance that we're going to continue to have a free press. And one of the things I learned as a history major was some of the worst governments that ever existed were unexpected. Not trying to make this seem overblown, but I I have often thought when people saw disturbing things happening around them, did they stand up for what they believed in? And so when I saw an administration that was saying things that were contrary to the values of our American democracy, and I saw the unwillingness of people in Congress, particularly the party in power, that they were unwilling to stand up, I really started to worry about our future as a country. And I saw that we have a congressman who doesn't really represent the people of this district. I didn't think there was anyone else who could make this race competitive and win this seat. And so I decided this was the time to stand up. For my mom and these other women, it wasn't an easy calculation to run. Anyone who runs for office opens up their whole life to the world. I I mean, I've gone into this with the understanding that they're going to say terrible things about me, my husband, and my family. And one of the things that my mother always taught me, you never want to destroy your reputation. You spend years and years and years building a good reputation. And when it comes right down to it, that's what you have. And I have spent years and years building my reputation, trying to act in a way that was honest and honorable and give back to my community and stand up for people who were not able to stand up for themselves. And your father has done the same thing. And both of us came from families where they were the same way. And so to know that I'm going to have ads on TV that twist everything about me and my life and my husband and my family, that is really daunting. And that's why so often good people don't run. Because why would you expose your family to that? That's a terrible thing to go through. But I think what we're seeing all across the country is that there are a lot of people, and particularly women, who've made the decision that because our country is so off track and because we're in danger of losing our democracy, that we're willing to make that sacrifice. The issues here are personal. When stories came out about immigrants being separated from their children, my mom had a visceral negative reaction. What happened to her grandparents' American dream? When Congress worked to take health care away from millions of Americans, my mom worried about my ability to get coverage as someone with a pre-existing condition. 
politics is personal. And as she started traveling the district, she realized that her issues and the issues she heard about from others in Greensboro were the same issues that kept people up at night in High Point and Statesville and all the other parts of the district. Wherever we go, and I say to people, tell me what keeps you up at night. First of all, what I've loved is how open people are. You ask them what keeps them up at night, they can't wait to tell you. And the issues that they talk about are the same. People are worried about the cost of health care. They're worried about the cost of prescription drugs. They're worried about Social Security and Medicare. They're worried about cuts to Medicaid. They're worried about getting their kids a really good education to make sure that they can be ready to take the jobs that are not just out there today, but the jobs of tomorrow. They're worried about having multiple pathways for successful careers. We need to address the student debt problem. And then the other thing that people talk about is jobs that pay a livable wage. I talked to a teacher who works, she's been teaching for 25 years. She works three jobs. I talked to a couple who, she works the day shift. He works the night shift. So they can handle children without having the high cost of childcare, but they never see each other. So these are the things I hear people talking about. Doesn't matter whether I'm in Greensboro or Statesville or Salisbury, the same issues that people are worried about all across the district. The commonalities show that my mom isn't alone in worrying about these problems. She's also not alone in her determination to find solutions. I have met one of the other women candidates. They are unbelievable. Candidates that have such incredible qualifications, and I think they're doing this for the right reason. And my hope is that all of those women that I've met win their races, and we come to Washington, and we bring an attitude of collaboration, willingness to work together, with an understanding that we're not going to agree on everything, but we've got to set some goals and figure out how to make some changes. Her feeling that this movement of women can go to Washington and work together across the aisle is actually supported by studies of previous women in office. I spoke with Jay Newton-Small to learn more. Studies show that women are generally more collaborative. They're more relationship-driven. They tend to look for common ground and more win-win scenarios than rather win-loss scenarios. Jay is the author of Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way Washington Works, which was published in 2016. In it, Jay talks about women reaching critical mass. That's a sociological term for when a minority group reaches the point that they have influence in an organization or group. It's typically seen as 20 to 30 percent. Men, when they get into hyper-competitive situations, they tend to take everything as a zero-sum game. So there's a winner and there's a loser. And I think particularly in politics, there is almost never a winner and a loser in politics. Part of that collaboration, that working across the aisle, comes from actually getting to know counterparts in social situations. That's really, I think, you could argue what's broken government in in recent years as men have gotten to know each other less and less because members spend less time uh, starting in the 1990s when Newt Gingrich changed the congressional rules. Speaker Gingrich encouraged members to go home more often and spend weekends at home, keep their families back in their district. So because members now so rarely live in Washington, D.C., they don't bring their families here, their families don't get to know each other, and they don't really get to know each other. And so it's rare even for members of the same party to become friends because they spend so little time, frankly, in Washington and so much more time out in their districts. The one exception to that rule has been the women because women, you know, have often 
they've had this long-standing tradition of bipartisan dinners with women from the other sides of the aisle for more than 20 years. Since 1992, women have been holding these regular dinners every month or two. And so because women got to know each other and became friendly, they are some of the very few members, frankly, in Washington that are able to pick up a phone and call a member of the other party in a very casual way, trust them, work with them, know them. And it has helped them be, frankly, some of the most productive members of Congress in the last few years, if not decade. Having more women in office actually affects the kinds of legislation that reach the House floor. Starting in 1992 in the Senate, already you saw enormous amounts of policy changes that have happened since that time. Barbara Mikulski, who sort of was the, the long-standing dean of the Senate women who retired two years ago now, she um, was a Democrat from Maryland, but she often talks about how when she entered Congress, uh, I think she came in, she was elected in 1989 and took her seat in 1990, funding for breast cancer research was less than $100,000 a year. She increased that a thousandfold. All medical research was done only on male subjects. They never thought to do medical research on women, even though our bodies and biology is completely different. So they got funding to do medical research on women. They have very much changed the laws um, surrounding the workplace, uh, even the Violence Against Women's Act, which at that time was incredibly controversial when it was passed. It seems like a no-brainer to us today, but at that point, it wasn't. Um, and it was considered the government getting involved in people's bedroom decisions. Research shows that voters know that women work across the aisle to get things done. That's Amanda Hunter again. And voters also know that women are in touch with their lives. Voters know that in many households or in many families, even non-traditional families, women have a majority of the emotional labor and worry about a lot of things that are different from the way that men think and are more in touch with everyday lives and kitchen table issues. That's why getting more women elected really matters. We're facing serious gridlock in Washington, and we're not utilizing the brain power or skills of a huge portion of the American public. You have... 51% of the population being represented by under a quarter of all elected officials. You know, that's just crazy. And you're wasting talent. You're wasting creativity. You're wasting new perspectives. That's Debbie Walsh again. We are confronted with just too many problems right now to just write off half of the population. So there's that. But then there's also from the research that we've done where we know that they have different, women have different priorities. And look, I think it's why you want to have diversity of all kinds in your legislative institutions in government itself. The more reflective our legislators are of the general population, the more reflective policy will be to the needs of citizens. The women who serve are more likely to have priorities that affect women, families, and children, but they're just seeing policy through that gendered lens. You know, they're looking at a piece of healthcare legislation that may not be about women per se, but they're understanding what does this mean to women? What does this mean to kids? What does this mean to families? We also know that women are more likely to be more inclusive in their leadership style. They are more likely to make sure that the voices that aren't normally heard at the table are heard. They're changing the way government works. From my vantage point, seeing my mom run for office, I think being a candidate is one of the hardest jobs in the world. It certainly has rough days, and just because there are more women running now, that doesn't mean the hurdles for women have gone away. 
There are a number of structural barriers that have kept women from advancing in the past, like lack of a fundraising network. Traditionally, there was the old boys club of having the country club or different private clubs and networking groups and access to other men that would support them in a way that women simply didn't have. Of course, that's changing all the time. And there are a lot of stories about PACs and groups where women support other women, but they, they simply don't have the history that men have in that regard. People really won't support a woman if they don't like her, even if they believe that she's qualified. But voters will support a man that they don't like if they believe that he's qualified. So that's a big challenge. Women have to win over voters and convince them that they're likable. And they have a very short window of time to do that. Women voters can be really tough on women candidates. There's a saying about dress well and remember the woman dress poorly and remember the dress. It's, you know, an outdated statement, but I think that still rings true that women need to feel confident and they need to be authentic, but they still have to present themselves in a way that's appropriate for voters, whatever that means, and their race. And our advice is very much walking a tightrope. Here's my mom again. From a practical standpoint, it's more difficult as a female candidate to figure out what you're supposed to wear every day. And I know that sounds silly, but men just put on a suit and a jacket and a plain shirt you know, button-down collar shirt, and they take off their jacket, roll up their sleeves, and they're casual. They put on the jacket, put on a tie, and they're businesslike. For women, it's not the same thing. And so you have to pay a lot more attention to what you wear. And I think people scrutinize the way women look more than they do men. One of the things that you find as a candidate is that you get lots and lots of advice. You get advice from everybody. And I recently attended a gathering where right off the bat, they just started firing questions at me. And I kept my cool and I answered them and I could see throughout the evening, some of them starting to relax. And I started to get some smiles from some of the people who I thought were the toughest at the beginning. So by the end, I felt like things had gone pretty well. But I then had a visit from the organizers and one of them had a written critique of everything I had done wrong in his eyes. He told me that I needed to present myself with more passion. I needed to be less intellectual and more from the heart. And asked about, you know, I surely had felt discrimination in my life. And why didn't I talk about that? And it, I have to tell you, it was tough to take. First, I just listened. I said, thank you. That, you know, that's important. And then he just kept pushing and pushing. And I finally said you know, I'm not going to change who I am. He said, one woman thought I was fake. I said, if you think people think I'm fake when I'm expressing myself the way I really do, they're really going to think I'm fake if I try to change to somebody that I'm not. And he just kept pushing back at me. That's the kind of thing that's tough to take. Because while it was important for me to hear what he said, what I didn't remind him is we won that area. So even though he and the other person who came with him wanted to change everything about me, apparently what I was was okay when it came to the primary. These women won't be successful unless people get out and vote. Midterm elections are a very hard time to run for office. Generally speaking, women and minorities tend to not show up at the polls in midterm elections. So to give you an idea of this, if the same number of women had shown up, particularly actually just unmarried women, so if the same number of unmarried women, just that one demographic, 
had turned out in the same numbers in 2014 that had turned out in the 2012 presidential election, the Democrats would have not only kept the House, they also would have kept the Senate. And so it's it's something that would have really made a huge impact for them. So the fact that we're looking at this surge in, a, in an off presidential election year is really interesting, but it's also potentially really risky if a lot of women don't turn out to vote for all these women running for office. Even so, this moment feels different. This surge of interest and action is the definition of a groundswell. And I feel hopeful about what could happen come November and even beyond. Last night we had the Democratic Women's Potluck Dinner. It was incredibly well attended. There were probably 200 people there. And I got there late because I had been chasing after a potential donor and she called just as we were getting ready to leave. And But I walked in and I had all these women waving at me and woman next to me showed me the picture she'd taken with me back at our office opening. And people came up afterwards and wanted to take their picture with me. And when I got up to do my little one minute speech, I got a lot of cheers. And it just made me feel like we have this great group effort going on. And we're doing this as a team. And this room full of people, they want to be part of this. And that was pretty exciting. It's not just about the candidates. It's about the people all over the country who are stepping up. People like you who are engaged and interested, perhaps in a way that you weren't before. Every week, we're going to dive deeper into one candidate's story. We're also going to ask big questions and seek expert advice on the broader context of why there are so few women in elected office and what would be different if that changed. Next week, we're going to look at another reason women don't run, or at least another reason it's harder for them to do so. We're talking about money. It may be harder for women to raise that money. It might take them 10 phone calls to raise $1,000, where a man might make one phone call and raise it. I am not a wealthy person who can self-fund. You know, my contacts were people who could contribute $100, not $5,400. It takes a lot of $100 donations to add up to $5,400. More on that coming to you on Tuesday. Thank you for listening to our first ever episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please tell your friends. And if you didn't, let me know. Let's start a conversation. This movement is about reaching out to the other side, increasing empathy for opposing views, and sharing in the quest for justice and progress. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.